an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, the historic Compline Singing Prayer Service welcomes back a live audience to St. Mark's Cathedral. It's just a way to give thanks for the day that has been and to pray for safety through the night. And then, from the archives, when Washington broke free from Oregon at the Cowlitz Convention. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. Our resident historian, Felix Bunnell, joins us Friday mornings for All Over the Map, a quick look at the stories behind local places and things. And this week, we're going to pedal through history on the growing network of U.S. (laughs) bike routes here in the Evergreen State. Good morning, Felix. Morning, Aaron. Yeah, I was up in the Skagit Valley over the weekend traveling on one of my favorite roads, the North Cascades Highway. That's State Route 20. I noticed some new signage I hadn't seen before. Each had a white shield with U.S. and a bike shape in green in the number 10. Turns out these are signs for U.S. Bike Route 10. It's a nationwide program that goes back about 40 years but took a while to get going. It's really only been underway for about a decade. The idea is to designate, with their own numbering system, a, you know, separate from the U.S. highways, separate from the interstates, mm. a national web of bike-friendly roadways and trails. This helps bicyclists find the, find the safe routes, also helps bring tourism dollars to those communities that might be somewhat off the main highway, and it gives motorists an alert to be on the lookout for bikes. Now, I love signs, and the U.S. bike route sign is actually pretty cool looking. It's simple and straightforward, looks official and timeless without being cutesy or corny. Uh, there's a guy named John Pope, who's the volunteer statewide coordinator for the U.S. bike route program. He told me there's about 750 miles of these routes in the Evergreen State so far. Now, there hasn't been a concentrated effort along all those routes to install signage. It's kind of up to the individual jurisdictions, but they're all mapped out, and there's PDFs available. We have links at My Northwest. Now, what I really think is cool is that along Highway 20, the U.S. Bike Route 10 official designation follows much of the place you drive your car. But it also goes off that road onto these old stretches of highway, like what they used to call PSH 16, Primary State Highway 16, or State 17A. These are the old twisty concrete roads and uh, paved roads that go closer to the river. You go through old towns like Lyman and Hamilton, these 19th century little farming towns in the Skagit Valley. And going by bicycle is one of the best ways to see scenery of these old towns, especially in rural areas in uh, like farms and that sort of thing. We have photos and maps at My Northwest and links to where you can download PDFs um, from the Washington State Department of Transportation. Now, one quick little sidebar here. I noticed you called them U.S. bike routes. Yes. <laughs> I call them U.S. bike routes, right? And I did a little poll on Twitter yesterday and posted on Facebook, and there was sort of a battle raging about what people say. And bottom line, people use both versions of that word. Yes. Um, although route seems to be more dominant here by about a 60 to 40 margin on the Twitter poll. Still time to vote at my Twitter feed if you want to. Um, lots of people raging about how they say Route 66, but they say paper route. Or they say, yes. I take this route to work, or but I go this yes, way when Felix. I take a route. Yeah, so anyway, that's a whole other story. Someday we'll devote an entire hour to root versus route oh, or creek, creek versus crick or roof versus oh, roof. Don't Please don't say crick. Yeah. <laughs> Reminds me of my old neighbor. Anyway, um, we have all this great stuff at MyNorthwest.com. All, uh, you can take U.S. bike routes or U.S. bike routes. You can think of it however you like, <laughs> but the signs are timeless, and it's a really cool new way to see the evergreen state. That is fantastic, Felix. Thank you so much. Thanks, Aaron. Serving greater Seattle.
it's a beloved Sunday night tradition celebrating its 65th anniversary this year. And like so many other things, the weekly, the weekly Compline service at St. Mark's Cathedral was interrupted by the pandemic. But this weekend, in-person Compline returns. And here with a preview, as well as some of the history, is our resident historian, Felix Bennell. Felix is brought to you by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Good morning, Felix. Good morning, Aaron. And you might be wondering exactly what is Compline. Mm-hmm. Now, that was a sample we heard a moment ago. It's a, technically a monastic prayer service. It's been a fixture in Seattle since the 1950s. Now, Compline never really went away during the pandemic. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But it does return this Sunday night at 9.30 p.m. as an event you can attend in person for free at St. Mark's Cathedral on Capitol Hill in Seattle. Now, director of the Compline Choir for the past decade or so is Jason Anderson. He told me the word monastic uh, means monks and nuns, but his choir members are neither. And he said Compline is an office, where the word office means duty. These offices are prayed at regular intervals, and Compline um, is the last monastic office, normally sung by a nun or a monk at bedside on their own by themselves. And it's just a way to give thanks for the day that has been and to pray for safety through the night. That has, at St. Mark's anyway, become a group presentation, a group prayer service sung by the Compline Choir, and we open it to the public. And Compline in Seattle dates way back to 1956. It was launched at St. Mark's by the late Peter Halleck. He was born and raised here in the Northwest in Kent. In the late 1940s, he attended the Royal School of Church Music in England, and while he was there, he sung Compline in the crypt at Canterbury Cathedral. That made a big impression on him. So when Peter Halleck was hired at St. Mark's in the early 50s, um, he decided to launch Compline here. And the 50s in Seattle, it's kind of a fascinating era. It was a fecund mm. era. Um, the city was bursting with talent and ripe with possibilities. People in those years were aspirationally cosmopolitan and sophisticated. You know, they, they called Seattle New York Alki back in the 1850s, mm. with Alki meaning someday or eventually kind of in an ironic sense. It it might never be a great city, but it seemed like it actually was becoming true, and I think that probably did come true during the 1962 World's Fair. Mm -hmm. That's also the year that Dorothy Bullitt's King FM, that great classical music station, began carrying a live broadcast of Compline every Sunday night. And while Compline's been consistently popular for decades with with certain audiences, it does seem to get rediscovered by hipsters every 10 or 15 years or so, (laughs) and they'll see people there with... um, you know, I'll be dating myself, you know, people with piercings and things and scary tattoos. No. <laughs> but part of the appeal is the beauty of the music and the stunning sound of as many as 24 voices in harmony. And there's a certain timelessness and universality to the whole Compline package that just fits Seattle. Now, Jason Anderson, who trained under founder Peter Halleck, says it's not political, but it is topical. Topical to the extent that it is a religious service, yes, which... Oddly enough, still draws people here in the Pacific Northwest, but we don't get political. There's no sermon. There's no preaching. There's just the religious texts, the psalm settings that are sung. Um, that That's what you're going to hear. And how you interact or choose to believe or not believe uh, what you're hearing, that's up to you. We, we're not engaged in the business of um, telling people what they should think or believe. It's more about the experience and providing an acoustical and, a, I guess, a psychological space for people to um, disengage from the crazy world that it is and just be in a sacred, hallowed space. You know, and the sound and the setting in that hallowed space there at St. Mark's, which I think dates back to the 1920s, is incredible. Mm-hmm. It's definitely part of the appeal. And the enormity of the space even comes through on the radio. You can hear sort of this big booming sound 
Yeah. Oh, the giant, I don't know, not calling it a barn would probably be insulting, but it's this big, the booming sound, your audience members coughing and sort of feet kind of shuffling. Now, for some recent history, in March 2020, because of the pandemic, they did stop allowing the audience in to watch and listen to Compton in person, but they continued on the radio and eventually added Zoom. As the pandemic wore on, they reduced the size of the choir from 24 to 8, and then down to just four singers. And then it got kind of, it, it got real. In December last year, they really shrunk down to just a single singer and one person speaking. Uh, yeah, well, it was a single voice um, in, you know, dimly lit cathedral with just single voice, a single speaker, um, and that was it. And it just became um, a, a way for us to maintain that continuity of praying the office in the space, in the space that is St. Mark's, um, even though the full choir couldn't be there. You know, and I found that pretty moving. The fact they kept the ritual going in the space, yeah. even though it was reduced down because of the pandemic to just two people. I mean, there's so many things during the pandemic that people have done to kind of, I don't know, maintain a sense of normalcy. Now, I personally didn't listen to Compline during that period. And as it turns out, I wouldn't have heard those two-person versions. And those services, we did not broadcast. We recorded them for posterity's sake. But um, in conversations with uh, King FM, our, our radio partner on Sunday nights and with cathedral leadership. We didn't think that single soloist with a single speaker was something that would um, be of comfort to people. Um, knowing that it was still going on would be enough. Now, when I heard that, I was even more deeply moved. Because um, yeah. on the radio, they play reruns from December to February because they thought those sounded more reassuring to listeners. But still, every Sunday night, 9.30, whatever the weather, yeah. uh, there'd be two people up there doing that Compline ritual at 9.30, even though nobody was listening. Well, maybe God was listening, but mm -hmm. nobody was listening. There was no audience. And, um, you know, Jason Anderson mentioned they did record those, those two-person sessions. And I asked, you know, they're not willing to share those yet. At some point in the future, they are going to release those. And I think they formed this incredible record of something that happened during the pandemic, this commitment to this, keeping this tradition going regardless of, of the audience not being there and it not being on the radio. I think that's pretty yeah. amazing. Like a, like a single soldier standing in the rain kind of thing. Yeah, yeah it's just, it's just going on. And they didn't, they didn't call any attention to it. I don't think, I think we might be scooping the world with the fact they did this. I, I'm not positive mm. on that, but I think they didn't, they didn't share the fact they were just doing it to keep the tradition going, which I think is amazing. Now, Jason Anderson told me there's likely mixed emotions among the choir members about the in-person audience re, uh, returning this Sunday. But he's clear about the value of having living, breathing, non-Zooming, non-radio humans there in person. There is this unspoken dialogue that occurs between the choir members presenting the service and those who receive it. Having those folks present um, will sort of complete the nature of communal prayer, uh, being at prayer with one with, with each other. I think other guys will have um, a different sort of feeling or emotion, but um, it's a lot more gratifying. It's a lot more fulfilling when what you're offering is received by someone. You know, and this this sounds flippant for me, but it's the difference like when we do our live radio plays in person with mm -hmm. an audience like we've done in the past yeah. or like last year when we did them in the studio because of the pandemic. It's always more fun when there's a live audience there right. with you living and you're breathing and coughing and reacting to what you're doing. So Compline does return this Sunday night. It's 930 at St. Mark's Cathedral on Capitol Hill. The doors will open around 910 p.m. 
It's a big space. There's plenty of room to social distance, and masks are encouraged. And, you know, I think the last time I went to Compton was probably January of 2020. And it's, you know, before that, it had been, it'd been a few years since I'd been there. Yeah. And it really is just one of those Seattle things that you have to attend it in person at least once. It's great to bring out-of-town people there during the holidays. But the fact that it's coming back, and it'll be live on the radio on King FM as it has been for, what, since 1962? Wow. And it's celebrating its 65th anniversary this year. It's yeah. just... It's a really cool little thing. It's time to be rediscovered by another group of uh, Cairo radio hipsters. Come on. <laughs> I love this, Felix. I did, you know, I did find out about this uh, from some hipster friends. Yeah, uh, exactly. Not, not too long ago. Uh, have you been to St. Mark's? Have you seen the singing they do on Sundays? And It's very it cool. It really is people with no uh, particular religious connection uh, going and and feeling it and experiencing it and, and really getting a, a lot out of that experience. So... I, I do want to underline, like, even if you're not a religious person, this is uh, this is quite a, a wonderful thing to do. Let's hear a little bit more of it as we head out of this. Yeah, let's do it. I love this. Bathed in reverb is Felix Bennell. Thank you, sir, our resident Thanks, historian. Sir. Thanks, Aaron. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, separating Washington from Oregon Territory began in August 1851 with the Cowlitz Convention. Green Douglas fir where the waters cut through, down her wild mountains and canyons she flew, Canadian Northwest. To the ocean so blue, it's roll on, Columbia, roll on. Here we go. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Your power is turning our darkness to dawn. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Felix Bunnell is here, brought to us by the King County Library System. We go back to Washington Territory, August of 18. 51. It was actually Oregon Territory then, because the settlers here had been created. Oregon Territory was created in 1848, but the settlers were tired of it. They, they had a plight they wanted to deal with. Their plight was being cut off from all the government services down in Oregon City and Salem. It was a couple days' travel from anywhere in Wash, what's now Washington to get to where the government was. Isaac Eby said, the communication between these two portions of the territory is difficult, casual, and uncertain. Um, I caught up with uh, historian and author Julie Zander. She lives in Toledo. That's a suburb of Napa Vine down mm-hmm. in southwest Washington. She said what happened along the Cowlitz River about a mile south of what's now downtown Toledo, it was at a key transportation hub of the 19th century. Well, there were 26 settlers from the area north of Vancouver who gathered at Cowlitz Landing on August 29, 1851, to petition Congress to create a separate territory. These settlers were tired of going south to Salem, south to Oregon City, that area, for any sort of uh, public meetings. So they wanted their own territory north Mm -hmm. of the Columbia River. Let's just go online. What's that? Never mind. (laughs) Sorry. The event's known as a Cowlitz Convention. Cowlitz Landing was a place you could land a boat from the Columbia River and and then hike or go by horse up to the Puget Sound. Convention of August 29, 1851, it came about after a rousing Fourth of July speech by a guy named John Chapman. He called for splitting off from Oregon Territory. The meeting at Cowlitz Landing began on a Friday, continued into the next day. The men, and they were all men, no women, of course, no Native Americans, all white guys. They were with help mainly from Chapman, prepared a document explaining what they wanted from the from Congress and why. It's called a Memorial to Congress. It got published in the Oregonian, the Oregon Spectator. 
There were no newspapers north of the Columbia in those days. Um, and those newspapers made their way to Joseph Lane, who was our territorial representative back in Washington, D.C., and he introduced the legislation in early December 1852 um, to create Columbia Territory. Of course, this guy from Kentucky meddled and made it, change it to Washington Territory, right? And as all, we were signed into existence on March 2nd, 1853, by President Millard Fillmore. It took six or seven weeks for word to reach here that Washington Territory had been created. And this is the complicated part, because the Cowlitz Convention's always been sort of overshadowed by a later and larger gathering at a place near Longview called Monticello. There was a Monticello convention back in December, excuse me, November of 1852, just a few weeks before Joseph Lane introduced the legislation. Again, this is sort of complicated. But I asked Julie Zander why Cowlitz Landing and Lewis County have rarely gotten credit for being the true cradle of Washington Territory. I think because um, Lewis County is smaller and also because the immediate action came after the Monticello Convention in 1852. So that was in November 25th, and then, you know, four months later, Congress created Washington Territory. So they give all the credit to the to the Longview Monticello Convention, whereas we set, you know, we set the ground, laid the groundwork for that here at the Cowlitz Landing Convention. Yeah, so it's not as if Monticello is super well-known or a household name either, but no. Cowlitz Landing is almost completely forgotten. But the great historian Edmund Meany figured this out back in 1922. He's pretty sure the true source of, the, of Joseph Lane's legislation was the Cowlitz Convention, because... Monticello Convention happened November 25th. He introduced the legislation December 6th. Mm-hmm. Remember how it took six weeks for word to get here that we'd right. been created? So there's no way that the, the Monticello Convention had the impact that people think Well, there it needs had. to be a statue there or something. Well, there is at both places, actually. Right by the bridge there in Toledo, there's a little tiny monument that says, uh-huh. here was the Cowlitz Convention. Um, you know, and, it, and Julie described how the men gathered there and hashed out the issues. You know, it wasn't in secret. It wasn't violent or vociferous. I told her it all sounded very civilized. Oh, it was compared to, <laughs> compared to nowadays. Yeah, it was very civilized. And, you know, these people weren't always happy with one another, but they um, they learned to work together. Well, I mean, the secession wasn't motivated by discontent. It was just about convenience, right? Well, I mean, they were discontent. I mean, if you were a sort of a power broker in Oregon, you'd want no. to keep Oregon this big, giant state. But the people of Oregon weren't. Joseph Lane, they were very amenable to it. They thought eh, it made sense. These are two very right. distinct territories. The Columbia River is a big natural barrier. Let's be smart about this because they'll never be having the state as large as Oregon territory was would have been impractical. Yeah. yeah. So there's no parade, no fireworks uh, scheduled for next week in uh, Cowlitz Landing, unfortunately. But I hope this will become somehow become the cradle of Washington Territory and be recognized as such by those people down there. So August of 1851, Cowlitz Landing, the actual birthplace of Washington as a citizen action, as its own entity. Yep, absolutely. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. Follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at mynorthwest.com. And please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. Things are.